0: Well, we've come to Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. We see in this passage that there is a series of questions as Jesus has come into Jerusalem, as we've been trekking Jesus coming into Jerusalem for that last week, that passion week leading up to the crucifixion and ultimately the resurrection. And now we see in this passage that the opposition has united. The opposition is coming against Jesus, and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see that they come to Jesus in a series of questions. Questions trying to entrap him. Questions trying to entangle him. Trying to provide evidences for his prosecution. This morning, we will look at the first question that is posed to him. It's a question of priorities. You see, it is posed to him by the Pharisees and the Herodians. When I was a boy growing up, I was a comic book kid. I loved the comic books. And my favorite comics were the Hulk and Thor. I like the Hulk and I like the Thor because... They were unstoppable. Nobody could do anything with them. I don't care who they were up against, you could not do anything with Hulk. And and, And you couldn't do anything with Thor. In fact, the only one who could even slow down Hulk was Thor. And the only one who could do anything with Thor was Hulk. However, on, a, on occasions, the writer of these comics decided that it was time for these enemies to join forces. And so they came out with the comic book, The Avengers. And Avengers teamed up Thor and Hulk. I know that sounds crazy. It was, it was crazy. But not only did they team up Thor and Hulk, but they teamed up Iron Man and, and Captain America. And, you know, it's just crazy. Thor, Thor's not going to get along with anybody. And Captain America, I mean, and and, and Hulk isn't going to get along with Iron Man. And Iron Man just can't get along with anybody. But they created the Avengers. And in writing the Avengers, this is what they said. They said, the Avengers were formed to fight the foes no single superhero could withstand. The avengers, normally enemies, were united against a common threat. This is what we see in our text this week. We'll see in the coming weeks. The Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees were not friends. They were not comrades. And normally, they were in opposition to one another. And yet when faced with Jesus and the common threat that Jesus posed to their way of thinking and their way of life when he posed this threat to their power, to their influence, to their prosperity, the Bible here tells us that they joined forces together. I guess they considered themselves the Avengers. The Jewish avengers, avenging the Jewish traditions as they saw him, And as Jesus once again came to the temple, the avengers went on the attack. And you see this. The opposition that Jesus posed to them was a serious threat. It was a serious threat to those who manipulated God's people. Jesus was a serious threat to those who manipulated the worship of God. Those who profited from the desecration of the temple. Those who did not take kindly to Jesus upsetting their system. You know, when money and power are at stake, enemies quickly become allies. And so we see it here. In this text, the Pharisees, who were these people, these were the religious zealots. These were the religious, the self-appointed moral authorities of the nation. The moral majority, you might want to call them. They were those who considered themselves to be the guardians of Jewish tradition. The most prominent among those who often opposed Jesus. Whenever there was an official religious opposition to Jesus, the Bible seemed to Pictured in the persons of the Pharisees. They were the religiously proud. The religiously arrogant. The religiously self-assured. According to them, they knew the scriptures. They knew the traditions. They knew the songs. They knew the creeds. They knew the confessions. They knew the prayers. They had the first and the finest seats in the synagogues they were good church going people these were the Pharisees then there came with the Pharisees the Herodians and Herodians were not so much a religious group as they were a political group they were the political elite among the Jews they had gotten good gotten in good with King Herod and the ruling elite They had sold their soul for political profit and for the political structure. And they were profiting quite well from the ruling system. The system that ultimately was oppressing their people, they were profiting from that system. And they were held in contempt. In contempt by the Pharisees for their religious and political compromise. They were milking the system that was milking their people. In other words, the Pharisees considered them to be sellouts. Uncle Tom's, if you were. This is not the first time they've come together. In Mark chapter 3 and verse 6, we see early on that they decided that it was going to be necessary to kind of join this alliance against Jesus. And now this alliance is finding its full fruition here at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry as he is preparing to go to the cross. They have decided that they must bring an end to Jesus. And if they're going to do it, they're willing to even set aside their differences so that they can bring it in to the Christ. This is amazing when you think about it. Absolutely amazing. One commentator said that the Herodians were as obnoxious to the Pharisees on political grounds as the Sadducees were on religious grounds. This was a collaboration in wickedness. said religion and politics don't mix. They particularly do when power and influence and money are at stake. And they come to Jesus, and they come to Jesus in a series of questions. Three confrontations, as we'll see over the next couple of weeks. Three confrontations. The the Pharisees and Herodians come. The Sadducees come right after them. And then the scribe comes right after that. Three consecutive occasions on which they bring questions to Jesus. Each question building and rising in depth and importance and and relevance to the kingdom of God and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus gives them three corresponding answers. Each answer gaining in depth and insight and relevance to the kingdom and the person and work of Christ. This morning, we deal with the first question, which is a question of priorities, a question of God's priority. Pharisees and Herodians, normally at at odds with one another, they come together, and they come together to trap Jesus. They come together to ensnare Jesus like you would ensnare an animal. Like you would set a trap for a beast. They come to set a trap for Jesus. And they find themselves the one trapped. I think it was Sir Walter Scott who said, Oh, what a tangle web we weave when first we practice to deceive." And so it is. They seek to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. But before they put Jesus on the horns of dilemma, notice what they do. Before they trap him, they want to fatten him up. Before they ensnare him, they want to soften him up for the kill. And you see this in the flattery of their words. You see this in the flattery of their words. Notice what they say. Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. You know they're right. Jesus is not swayed by people's appearances. God is not swayed by people's appearances. You remember when when God told Samuel that he was going to go out and find a king to replace Saul? Saul? And he goes out and he finds David, but David isn't much to look at as opposed to Saul. Saul is this huge man in stature, looked very kingly, and David is but just a little nappy-headed boy. And he smells like sheep. And Saul and Samuel says, That that can't be the one. And God says, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, Saul, Samuel, I don't look like other men look. You look on the outward appearances, but I search and look upon the hearts. So it is with God, so it was with Christ. Christ did not care about outward appearances. Christ looked upon the heart, and they knew this so they commend him that he is not swayed by appearances. He is not impressed with faces, but he's not only not impressed with faces, he is not impressed with their empty words. Notice what they call him. They call him teacher. Indeed, he was a teacher. He was a fine teacher. His reputation for being a teacher had gone throughout the land. There was not a better teacher. He was the teacher of teachers not only do they say he's a teacher but they say that you are real that you are honest that you have in integrity in other words Jesus when you teach you say what you mean and you mean what you say and there is no guile in your teaching that you actually practice what you preach we understand this We have not found any inconsistencies in your teachings as they relate to your own life. Jesus, you're real. You're a teacher who is real. You're a teacher who is honest. You are a teacher who has integrity in your life and what you're teaching. And then they say, and you teach God's way. You teach the way to God. The words that you proclaim, they are from God. We understand that you are teaching people ways and how they might inherit the kingdom of God, how they may come to God. We understand that your words are not necessarily your own, as you have said on several occasions, but they are the words that have been given to you from your father who is above. Someone has said that, can you imagine how hard it was for the Sarah Pharisees to say all those things? How hard it was for them to admit publicly that Jesus was a teacher, that Jesus was a true teacher, that Jesus was teaching God's way. Beloved, you read that and you say, they are right. What they say is right. The problem is not with what they say. The problem is that they just don't believe it. And beloved, this is the height of hypocrisy. The height of hypocrisy is to know the truth and not to live by it. I mean, not only is this the height of hypocrisy, but this is a sin of deadly consequences. Woe unto those, the Bible reminds us, who know the right thing to do and do not do it. That is a sin. Woe to those who know the truth and will not live by it. And here are the Pharisees. They know what Jesus has been teaching is true. They know that he is a faithful teacher. They know that he brings the way of God. How insulting is this? That they seek to play upon Jesus' vanity and pride? The problem is that he didn't have any. Unlike you and I, he does not succumb to flattery. They play upon his vanity and pride. The only problem is that he has none. Not only does he not have any, not only is his heart free from any vanity, but he knows the vanity and the emptiness that is in their hearts. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Jesus was not interested in men speaking well of him. Jesus was not interested in people following him around and saying, Oh, great Jesus, how great you are, Jesus. How wonderful you are, Jesus. In John chapter 2 and verse 24 and 25, the Bible says that after Jesus had cleansed the temple, He did not entrust himself to the people because he knew all people. And he knew what was in their hearts. In fact, in Mark chapter 7, just a few weeks earlier, we we had seen that Jesus in speaking of the Pharisees quoted from Isaiah the prophet. And he called them hypocrites, hypocrites, because as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You know, God does not listen to your lips without first hearing your heart. I'm interested in what you're saying. He wants to know what you really believe, what's really in the heart. As Proverbs chapter 26 and verses 24 through 28 remind us that flattering tongues are an abomination to the Lord. Flattering tongues are an abomination to the Lord because empty words do nothing but disguise empty worship. Others may be impressed, but God is not. Jesus is not. And nothing shows disdain, beloved, like going through the motions. Nothing shows disdain like just going through the motions. God does not desire a people who simply pray the prayers. He does not desire a people who simply sing the songs, who simply re- fight, recite the verses. He desires for a people who honor him with mouth, heart, and with hands. This is why we are not here this morning to flatter Jesus. We don't gather to flatter, we gather worship there is a difference flattery is self-centered people flatter because they want other people to think well of them that young man lady who comes to you and he flatters you and he throws all of these niceties upon you he's doing that because he wants you to think well of him Because flattery is always self-centered. Flattery is making much of others so that others will ultimately think well of you. It's not worship. Worship is God-centered because worship is making much of Christ so that others will think much of Christ. Worship is exalting Christ so that others would also exalt Christ. The Pharisees pretend to make much of Jesus, didn't they? But ultimately, they're making much of themselves. The Bible says in John chapter 12, verse 43, thinking of the Pharisees, It says, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And This is the sin of flattery, beloved, and we see it all the time. Flattery singing, flattery preaching. It pretends to make much of Jesus while all the time drawing attention to itself. Jesus exposes this foolishness. And the foolishness of their hearts by exposing the fallacy of their question. He shows that the flattery of their words is nothing more than a demonstration of the foolishness of their hearts. By exposing the fallacy of the question. Notice. Notice. After they have flattered Jesus, after they have think they have fatted him up and readied him for the kill, they set the trap. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Good teacher, faithful teacher, man of integrity, man of wisdom, man of knowledge? Man who teaches the way of God? Is it lawful for us to be paying taxes to Caesar or not? Should we be paying all these taxes or not, man of God? They quickly move from the the, the flattery of their confession. They move now to the fallacy of their question. And they're going to trick Jesus. They're going to trap him. You know why? Because they perceive themselves to be smart. That's what it is. They perceive themselves to be smart. But does the Bible tell us about that? That those professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. But they perceive themselves wise. Proverbs chapter 26 and verse 12, the Bible says, There is more hope for a fool than a man who is wise in his own eye. And here are the Pharisees and Herodians. They team up to defeat Jesus, only multiplying their own sin, multiplying their own foolishness, and multiplying their own condemnation. For you see, they they set a trap for Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? If he says yes, Yes, you should pay the taxes. Then the Pharisees are going to accuse him of siding with the Romans against the nation of Israel. He's going to say, they're going to accuse him of siding with the oppressors. They're going to accuse him of siding with those who are oppressing the nation of Israel and milking the nation for all of its resources and all of his financial prosperity. But if he says no, no, you are not to pay the taxes. No, you are not to give anything unto Caesars. No, if you are a Jew, you are not to be giving anything to the Roman nation. Then Herodians are going to go and accuse him of sedition. They're going to go and accuse him of, of, of raising up and rallying up the people and causing a revolution. And he will then be sentenced to death. This is a trap. It's what it is. It's a trap. It's they, they, they seek to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. And it seems that Jesus has no right answer. And notice what Jesus does. Before he even answers the question, he exposes their hypocrisy. He exposes them for what they are hypocrites and tools of the enemy. For he says, real quickly, why are you putting me to the test? Why are you tempting me? I've seen you before, I know your face. You have the same smell you had when we were out in the wilderness. For well, the temptation that comes to Jesus is nothing more again than the work of Satan himself. Why are you tempting me once again? This is the work of Satan. And Jesus said, he had said it before, and even now he's insinuated. You are of your father, the devil, and the works of your father you continue to do. This is the work of Satan, Beloved. Whenever, whenever God's people are, 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 wherever there's a trap set for God's people, it's the work of the devil. Whenever the world seeks to entrap, enslave, trick God's people into believing that the word of God is not the word of God, it is the work of the enemy. Don't be fooled. For he was a murderer and a liar from the beginning, Jesus said. Rather than trapping Jesus, they should have been trusting Jesus. And yet, rather than answer their question directly, Jesus shows them the priority of the kingdom and shows us and them that this question is not a question of taxes. It's a question of priorities. It's a question of the kingdom of God and the priorities of God. In his kingdom. It's a question of worship. Notice what Jesus says. Bring to me a coin. Whose likeness and inscription is on the coin. He says bring to me a coin. Bring to me a denarius. Look at the coin. Look at this Roman issued coin. Whose face, whose image is upon it. Naturally, the image of Caesar, whose inscription is upon it. Naturally, the inscription is the inscription of the Roman Empire. Beloved, look at your money this morning. If you got any, just look at it. If you got any piece of U.S. currency, there's an image on it. There's some inscriptions on it. It is an image and a description to remind you that ultimately you carry that money in your pocket but that money does not ultimately belong to you. You have it on loan. Unless your name is George Washington and you were the first president of the United States, that $1 bill is not yours. Unless you are Abraham Lincoln and you were the 16th president of the United States, that $5 bill does not belong To you, you have it on loan. And in fact, the government expects it back. You know, the average $1 bill stays in circulation for about 18 months. Then the government gets it back. The $5 bill stays in circulation about two years and then the government gets it back. The $10 bill stays in circulation about three years, and then the government gets it back. Government expects it back. Why? Because they made it. Caesar made the money. And if he wants some of it back, Jesus says, so be it. His image is on it. His inscription is on it. Jesus says, but you're missing the point. For Jesus is definitely going to bring about a revolution, but the revolution will not be televised. But it will be a revolution of the heart. Some of y'all got that reference. Other y'all didn't. <laughs> It'll be a revolution of the heart, and you notice this, because look at the focus of his answer. There is a focus upon his answer. The focus reveals the priority. Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Uh, Jesus reminds them that the issue is not taxes. Issue is priorities. Is your focus on the kingdom of God? Whose image and inscription is on the money, Caesar's? But whose image and inscription is upon you, God? It's not a question of taxes or whether or not Christians should pay or not pay taxes. But it's a question of priorities. Should you pay taxes? Well, just just answer just a few questions. This is a no-brainer, really. Let's just answer a few questions. Does the government provide the streets upon which you drive? Does the government back and guarantee the currency that is in your pocket? Does the government promote the general welfare and seek to provide for the domestic tranquility of the country? Does the government provide for the safety of your life as you walk the streets? Apparently it does, except for the state of Florida. But I digress. In general, does the government provide for your general welfare? Romans 13 and 1 reminds us that the governments are established by God for the good of the people. And that we, as Christians, have a duty and responsibility to the government to live peaceably, to live within the bounds of the law, to be citizens who obey the law, and part of those part of that obedience is the pain of our taxes. And yet, that obedience and duty is surpassed only by our duty and responsibility. To God, For Christians are those who live peaceably with all men, as it says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. But Acts chapter 5 reminds us that ultimately we are to obey God rather than men. And so we live peaceably with all people and we submit ourselves to the government. So as long as that government doesn't require for us to live in disobedience to God. Because the government might have its inscription upon my money. But God has his inscription upon my heart. The government might have his image upon my currency. But God has his image upon my soul. The coin belongs to Caesar. You and I belong to God. Give to Caesar what he has given to you. Give to God what he has given to you. He has put his image upon your soul. He has written his inscription upon your heart. In fact, beloved, this is why Jesus came into the world. This is the very point of what Jesus is saying. This is why Jesus came into the world. He came to redeem what belongs to God. He didn't come to redeem the tax code. Though the tax code probably needs redeeming. He didn't come to redeem the tax code. But he came to redeem you and me. He came to claim that which has his image marked upon it. Which is you which is me, came to claim that which ultimately belongs to him. And here's the question. Will you render to God what belongs to God because he has paid for it on the cross? Ask the question. Will you render to God what belongs to God because he has paid for it on the cross. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45 reminds us that Jesus came into this world to give his life as a ransom. The Bible reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that you are not your own, but you belong to God because God has paid for you with a price. And that price, beloved, was not silver or gold or any perishable thing, but Peter tells us that it was his own precious blood. He has paid the price. The cross upon which Jesus died is the price. He paid for you and he paid for me with his own precious blood. Now we belong to him. Will you render to God? What belongs to God? Your life is not your own. This. Is the substance of the Christian life. This is the ethic with which the Christian, life, the Christian life is lived. All Christians every day need to be conscious of the decisions that we make in light of the fact, I am not my own. I belong to him. But as the catechism says, is this not my only comfort in life and in death, that I am not my own, but belong both in body and soul? To my faithful savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood? You say it every Sunday. Do you believe it? Is that your only comfort? Do you find yourself comforted in the fact that I am not my own? And that I don't have to pursue wild and, and lustful and sinful pleasures because I am not my own. I belong to Jesus. And he watches over me in such a way. And that a hair can fall from my head without it being the will of my father in heaven. Is that not your comfort? Or is that just something you mouth with your lips and has not had nothing to do with your heart? Is that just empty words demonstrating empty worship? Or do we really believe that? If we really believe that, beloved, then we would say without uncertainty, I come to church, not to flatter, but I come to worship. I come to make much of him who has given his life for me. I come to give to him my all because he has given his all for me. The Christian knows that it's all about priorities. And what do I owe Christ? I owe Christ everything. This is the priority of my life. The priority of my life is worship. That's what I do. Every single day is worship. I acknowledge him in all my ways. Every day, it's about worship. Because I am not my own. But I belong to him. This is why the songwriter said so well. In response to this glorious truth, that you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. That you are not your own. Be it paid for all of your sins. That he watches over you. Every single day. That nothing comes to us. Good or what we perceive as bad. And before it has first passed through. His nail scarred hands for us. And you can say. In response, as the songwriter said, Mur the whole realm of nature mine That were a present far too small. It's love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. My all. It's not about taxes. You give Caesar what belongs to Caesar. The question is are you rendering to God what belongs to God? And what belongs to God? Everything. Everything. Everything belongs to Him. Your life, your soul. You're all. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, indeed, what a glorious reminder it is that you have put your imprint upon our souls. That we are those who have been created in your image and recreated for your glory. That Jesus Christ has shed his own blood for our souls. And we can say, indeed, it is well. And we can, in response, desire nothing more than to give our lives, to give our souls, and to give our alls. Father, does anyone here under the sound of my voice who still is wondering has Christ given his all for them i pray now by your spirit that you would impress upon them and indeed he has and they would in faith and repentance surrender surrender all to him even now even today in jesus name amen